right. Don't want to be too friendly. I feel like a couple minutes is, you know, sufficient. Thanks for doing that. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. My privilege to be with you. Uh, one quick follow-up on the announcements is if you are part of the, uh, the Q&A today, if you're finishing out your membership process today, uh, my suggestion would be as soon as we're done here, maybe run to Wawa, grab a little bit of lunch, um, and be back here by, you know, kind of as soon as you can. We will start at the very latest at noon. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if you'd like to grab lunch, we should be done by one or so. And so depending on your hunger pangs, um, you can kind of make a call on that. But Wawa is literally uh, two, you know, two parking lots over. You can walk there and grab something. Um, that would be my suggestion for that. We have been in this letter uh, in Philippians for some time now. And I hope that, especially if you've been traveling with us these last couple months, that you're starting to to kind of get, I was talking to, to someone in our church this week, and they're like, yeah, I'm starting to kind of get the world of Philippians. I'm starting to see the connections there and see how particularly this letter is just so cohesive in the message that it's trying to give. It has a consistent message throughout it. And that message is very much tailored to the particular context that it's written into. So this is the Apostle Paul, early Christian missionary and teacher, writing to one of the earliest Jesus-following communities, one of the earliest churches, in a place called Philippi. And Philippi is a very interesting city in that it's a, it's a city in ancient Macedonia, which is ancient Greece. And it's, uh, the most significant feature of Philippi is that it's a Roman colony. We've talked about this a couple times. What Roman colonies were, were these cities spread strategically throughout this massive Roman Empire, right? Like covering most of Europe, modern day, um, sort of... Uh, Turkey, that kind of area, like big, you know, big, big swaths of land that the Roman Empire is, was ruling over, but they would put these cities really strategically throughout it that would function as outposts of Rome itself. And not just in name, but in how they function. The, the laws were the exact same as if you were walking the streets of Rome itself in a Roman colony. Roman citizens had the exact same rights and privileges in one of these cities as they would have literally in Rome itself. And what we said way back when we were introducing the letter is that the function of a colony in the Roman Empire <clears throat> was not to be this bubble where you could go and experience Rome in miniature or something, but rather, a colony would function to be sort of the, the expression of all that was good and right and beautiful about Rome and about its, its culture, about how uh, it functioned in the world, about its values and all of these things. It was meant to be placed there in order that it might spread through the rest of the Roman Empire. And so if you, if you can almost picture this huge map of, which I should probably have put one up, but if you can picture a huge map of the Roman Empire dotted throughout it were these colonies, and the idea of the colonies is you would almost picture these arrows outward from it that were meant to cover the entire empire such that the ideals, values, culture of Rome was spread through every, not just major city like Philippi, but every tiny little, you know, Think of it like a suburban, rural kind of township from these colonies. What the Apostle Paul, by and large, is doing in Philippians is he's picking up on this idea. He's using that concept, and he's saying that those who have put their faith in Jesus, first and foremost, are proclaiming a different, ultimate allegiance in their life. The fundamental allegiance of someone in the Roman Empire would be to who? Caesar, right? And, and, the, and the, the way that that would be embodied is in this call. Picture, you know, in the, in the Olympic Games, people are, are gathered together, the literal, like old school Olympic game. And what they would cheer is Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, right? It was a declaration of independence. Well, you have in these early Jesus-following communities this foundational statement of their identity, which is not Caesar is Lord, but... Christ, yeah, Jesus is Lord. You see, their allegiance is to a different ultimate king, to a different ultimate Lord. And so Paul says, not only is your allegiance to, to a different sovereign divine 
king, but your citizenship, this is the key word in some ways in Philippians, that's the name of our series, your citizenship belongs to something other than the Roman Empire. Namely, we're actually getting to the passage in the next couple of weeks where he specifically says, your citizenship is in heaven. You belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a different empire that has vastly different values and culture and way of doing things. And he says, that makes you, if you're citizens of somewhere else, it makes who you are together like the expression of a Roman colony. You are a colony. You are an outpost of that which you represent. We track him with how he's sort of building this image for them. And so what we said is that the point of, of these outposts, of these colonies of heaven, are not to be bubbles within themselves, are not to just exist so that we might have our own little isolated private experience of what awaits us when we are finally where we want to be. Instead, like picture, picture that image in your mind, these outposts, these colonies are to have arrows outworld to impact and to bring the values and culture of that different kingdom to the surrounding world. Here, what I'm talking about is Paul's fundamental understanding of what the church exists for. And that the church is not to be this isolated, private thing where we huddle up and say, oh no, big bad world out there. We're actually to come together and to remind ourselves of the values and culture, remind ourselves of our ultimate allegiance to a different king, and then have a sense where we are sent out to embody that in the midst of, not in isolation from, a world in need of what we bring. Right, Because that's the conviction of the Roman Empire. It's not mere assimilation. It's not mere brainwashing or something. They believed that everybody needed this amazing new reality that the Roman Empire was bringing, a new kind of freedom, that they were safe and saved from their enemies, that there was a way of being that they believed um, encapsulated what it meant to be human, this, this pursuit of honor. Everybody needs to know that this is what it means to be truly alive. You see, that empire also brought with it what they believed to be an announcement of good news. And so out from those colonies, you would go into these small towns and say, I bring you good news. I announce good news. You're safe. You're saved by this divine figure, Caesar, and you get to be part of his kingdom. Oh, by the way, you have to bow the knee. You have to never you know, cause any trouble. You have to give yourself over to this pursuit of honor that's going to crush like the vast majority of you. But a few of you, it'll be wonderful for, right? In these early Christian communities, these early Christian churches come and they say, we too announce good news to you because there is one who offers true salvation, who actually comes and those who tend to be, not even tend to be, those who are overtly oppressed, marginalized, cast to the edges of society. Those are the very ones that he came to pursue and to lift up and to provide good news and true salvation and relationship with himself in spite of worldly circumstance. You see, they're bringing their own announcement of good news. So I felt like it was worth now that we're, I don't know, maybe three quarters of the way through here, just kind of reiterating. That's, that's the broad context. That's how Paul is working within this this particular cultural moment that he's in to bring this good news. Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what does it mean to live as citizens? What does faithfulness look like? If that's where, if our allegiance is ultimately to King Jesus, what is allegiance actually lived out in real time and space? What does allegiance look like? What is wholehearted, single-minded devotion to Jesus rather than to the surrounding world? What does it look like? And so we've been walking through that, starting first 
with the beating heart of the letter in Philippians 2, this example of Jesus, showing us not only is Jesus our example of what it actually means to be a human being fully alive, but he's the one who makes it possible for us to then follow him. He provides forgiveness. He provides new life. He provides a new start for you. And then he empowers you, this beautiful line where it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. One of the most beautiful things that God is actually, talk about good news, that God is actually able to work from the inside out to change us, to change our desires, to make us truly human, to make us the people that he called us to be. And then Paul goes into practical examples of that. He says, look, follow me, follow my example. He points to Timothy, his protege, and says, you're about to meet this guy. He's someone worth imitating. He says, oh, wait, wait, wait. You know Epaphroditus. You sent him to me. He got sick and kept going. That's an example worth following. If you have eyes to see, that's Jesus stuff in action with your boy, your dude, regular old, normal old, had nothing much going on so he could go on like a three-week trip, Epaphroditus. He's doing the Jesus thing. Then he comes back to himself. And last week we looked at Paul saying, look, you have these people among you saying there's, there's like JV Christians and there's varsity Christians. That's nonsense. There's only one thing, which is someone who has wholeheartedly, entirely, completely thrown all of their dependence on Jesus. There's <laughs> not junior varsity and varsity of dependent people. And he says, they want you to believe that you first have to become something other, ethnically, culturally, in your religious practice. At that time, it was was these Jewish influencers saying, no, 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 the the real Christians, the people who are really getting it, are the Christians who do all, all, all the stuff that we've been doing for generations. He says, no, 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 a new way has come. He says, look, I did all that stuff. And what I realize is that some of that stuff actually gets in the way of me being wholeheartedly dependent on Jesus for my life and salvation. And then he calls us to do the same. He says, what in your life is in the way? What's getting in the way of you being wholehearted, single-mindedly devoted to Jesus? And oftentimes it's the best stuff about us, not the worst stuff about us, that can get in the way, that can make our allegiance sort of half and half, that can cause us to have one foot in the world and one foot in this Jesus thing. He says, evaluate that stuff. What's keeping you? Because in the end, it's all going to be rubbish all going to be garbage. It's going to be thrown out. And the only thing that will matter is who you are when you stand before Jesus someday. Then these verses um, that are just so, so beautifully profound um, coming to the text for today. So chapter three, here it is on the not so scrolly Bible, but super cool visually Bible. Um, So he starts by saying, not that I have already obtained this, Now, the this there is really important. So let me just go back a couple verses. This is how he ended his last section. Verse 8, let me start there. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, that's where we ended last week, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I may be there in the end. I may make it. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's just all kinds of quotable, memorizable verses here. The most profound, um, poetic thoughts that Paul gives to, to what it means to live the Christian life. He says, not that I have already obtained this. You can imagine that reading what we just read about Paul's example. It's like, all right, cool, Paul has arrived but I know I haven't. (laughs) And sometimes when someone's arrived, the example that they give is so unobtainable that it's actually discouraging, right? Um, Like, I don't know, if you were to be like, you know, starting cello, and it's like, okay, here's your example. And like Yo-Yo Ma walks out, and you're like, and he plays for like 30 minutes, and it's like, now your turn. You're like, right? Like sometimes we put people out ahead of us and believe, hey, that's the standard. 
That's what a rival looks like. Now, 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 now go, right? And we don't actually have anyone come alongside. Paul wants to do everything but that. He's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You got to understand who's talking to you. I have not obtained this at all. In fact, what he will say in this passage is he said, every day of my life still feels like a slog at times. It feels like a race. It feels exhausting. I think what he's doing here is he's picking up on the reality that the New Testament could not be clear in all of the things it chooses as images of following Jesus, that following Jesus is not easy. All of the images like go out of their way to make that point. Think of Jesus's words. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and then you're starting to get it, right? What an image. Like we think of the cross and we think of, right, many of us, I have a cross around my neck. Many of us think of like, oh, the cross. Oh, the beautiful cross, right? Like these are the songs. Beautiful cross. Like I get what we're doing. Those are great songs. But like beautiful, right? When Jesus says that, think of it, right? He hasn't yet died on the cross. All they know of the cross is like, um, you know, like exactly. Execution. Take up your instrument of political execution and follow me. And then you get it. Anyone who tells you, come follow Jesus because your life will be easier and all roses and you will get what you, whatever you claim, that is, that is so out of step with what the scriptures, with what Jesus himself wanted to set us up for, right? And we can do this in subtle ways, right? There's, there's like the, the mass false teaching of prosperity gospel and all that, and it's just too easy a target. But we have our own palatable versions of this, right? Like think of, this is so hard, right? This is one of the reasons why we're doing a parenting discipleship lab is it is so hard to parent your kids into faithfulness without a subtle little teeny tiny prosperity gospel thing of like, yeah, but if you do it God's way, like things will be better. And I know what I mean by that. And, you, and I know what you mean by that. And I'm not going after you. But in some ways, we need to have the courage for each other and even for our children to say, hey, this Jesus thing, it's hard because it's out of step with what the world wants. But I can tell you, having Jesus and life being hard is better than not having Jesus and your life by all appearances being easy, right? That is, that is more in step with what Jesus actually says throughout the New Testament, right? Like Paul, the Apostle Paul, throughout his letters, when he wants to grasp after images for what it's like to, to follow Jesus, he grasps after uh, arena images of like, you've got to fight the good fight of faith, right? Like he's like, it, it's going to be a fight. You got to fight. He, here, he says it's like a race. It's like a really, really long race where at the end you're straining forward, he says. Think of Hebrews, the book that we worked through uh, whenever, last, last spring. Hebrews says the Christian life, the best biblical image for the Christian life is the story of God's people in the wilderness. Like if, if you're not particularly familiar with the biblical story, you may remember this from, from Prince of Egypt or from Charlton Heston or whatever, right? Like God's people enslaved in Egypt are freed from their slavery, go through the Red Sea, right? Like parting the waters and all that. Then they're in the wilderness. And for 40 years, it says they're more or less wandering. And they're like, have we been at this dust rock before, right? Like and they're wandering and they're thirsty and they're hungry, and they're like, Moses, just one more time, why are we out here? And Moses is like, I'm leading you to the promised land. They're like, yeah, it's 17 years later. Like, where? Right? They don't even see it until the, it's just desert all around them, and they're exhausted, and they grumble, and they complain. And Hebrews says, if you want a good, like, image, if you want a cool metaphor, if you want something that has a lot of overlap with what it's like to follow Jesus in this world, that's a good one. It's like wandering in the desert at times. Right? I think <laughs> what we head into, right, like this, this, is, this is something that, that my wife and I have wrestled with, with everything that we've been through over the last couple months, is like when hard stuff comes into your life, that's when you find out what, what the real foundation of your theology is, right? 
Because if you believe yourself, right, like, oh, I believe this about myself, like, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, and, you know, you try and do the right thing and all that stuff. And then something really horrible comes, and you say, ooh, like, kind of thought maybe I'd get a pass on this, right? That's, that's something that's gone through my heart and my mind, right? I thought that maybe I'd immunized myself from this by all of the good things that I have done previously. I would rebuke someone who would say that kind of thing, like, that's horrible theology, that's legalism, that's exactly what Paul... But our functional theology sometimes is most revealed when we're in the desert and we go, I, did I sign up for this? And Jesus goes, remember what I said? If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross, right? Like, the... And I have no, <laughs> I have no like great word of like, but it's actually not hard. No, it's hard. It's hard. Right? Like I, I know enough of you. I know enough of your stories to know um, if we were to do like hard, super easy, where are we at as a church? I'm telling you the hard outweighs right now in a big way. You guys are going through some stuff. And what I want to tell you is that does not call into, into, into question the integrity of God. Because God's integrity is intact because he did not sell us a bill of goods when he came. He said, look, in this world you will have trouble. Now, lo, I've overcome the world. So you can take heart. Faith is faith because it's not sight yet. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Lo, I've overcome the world. Therefore, take heart. In other words, be courageous. You need courage when it's scary right? Like, I don't, need, I don't need courage on vacation. Like, I don't wake my kids up down the shore, and I'm like, okay, kids, <laughs> be courageous today. We're going to go to the beach, then we're going to hit the boardwalk, you're going to ball out in the arcade, right? Like, I ju- just, just have courage, right? And yet, sometimes we say, wait, I thought I was on, you know, I thought I was on vacation with God. Why do I need courage? Yeah, you need courage because in this life you will have Let me say one more thing. I've been thinking about this so much. Is I think that, right, so then like why follow Jesus, right? Like if it's going to be hard anyway, why follow Jesus? I, I can tell you two things. Two things. Is This isn't necessarily the, the body of my sermon, but, um, but I feel compelled to say, why do I follow Jesus? I'll tell you. <laughs> why am I still in it? One, because... Um, I certainly only find it palatable that there is a God if that God knows what it's like to be in our position. If that God was actually in the wilderness. If that God actually had to strain forward to the end. If that God knows what it's like to pick up a cross. Because a God who asks you to pick up a cross to sacrifice for them, who themselves have not sacrificed, like, I just don't want anything to do with that. A God who has... A God who's described in Philippians 2 as though he was in the form of God, and what I argued was because he was in the form of God, did not count all of the rights and privileges of being God, a thing to be grasped after, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness, humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the point of death itself. Okay, (laughs) let's talk, right? That's divinity, that's the creator of the universe, was willing to leave far more rights and privileges than I've ever had, far more comfort than I've ever known, far more argument to never have to suffer anything because he has nothing to do with the brokenness of the world. Like like Newsflash, me and you, we're complicit in the brokenness of the world. We can't stand aside from it and say, that's not my mess. Why do I have to suffer that mess, right? This is what kids do, right? Clean up that mess. My brother made it, right? And you're kind of like, huh, kind of valid, right? Like, we don't get to do that. This is our mess. It wasn't his. He stepped into it and said, I will go all the way into the suffering of this world. I will go all the way into it, right? I was talking to a bunch of middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I said, until you can really, this week, and I said, until you can really wrap your mind around the fact that God became sin, he became it, He didn't see it. He didn't get close to it. He didn't dabble in it. He became it. What does that mean? I have no idea, but I'm so glad that it says it. 
Right? The Apostle Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, became it, became all of the worst stuff that you've ever experienced, became abandonment, became utter rejection, experienced injustice of the, of the highest sort, the creator of all things, put himself under a bunch of mocking soldiers. This is God. And so when he says, I am near to the brokenhearted, there's, there's, there's actual trust there for me, if I could be so bold. Because you, do you know who we tend to run to when the worst stuff happens in our lives? Other people who have experienced either really, really hard stuff or that exact thing. The fact that I can stand in front of you and say, there is no thing that you have experienced that God himself, by going from infinite privilege and glory and comfort, all the way down into bearing the full weight, right? Like, I don't know exactly how it worked, but somehow Jesus strewn out on the cross, the father placed his hand like the priest would on the lamb, and he said, receive all of the sins of this world, right? It all went on him. He knows it. That's the first thing. He knows. And so when it says he draws close, he's a trust worthy confidant in the midst of the worst that life has. That's not the end of the story. This is the second reason why I believe he's still worth following, even though it's really hard, is he's the only one who's ever conquered it. He's the only one who knew no sin. And even in becoming sin, that was a righteous, obedient act to the Father because it's something that God asked him to do. He conquered sin. That sin that he became killed him. That's what he died of. That's what his spiritual death was. Your sin, my sin. But it didn't win. His righteousness and goodness and holiness was superior to all of the sin of this world. That's who we're dealing with. Okay? And he rose victorious over it. He's bigger than all of it. And what he said, again, he didn't sell us a bill of goods. He didn't say, hey, when you follow me, then the world will be made right. He said, follow me, it's going to feel like a cross. But one day, one day, <laughs> what I have done, my victory, will be applied to the four corners of the universe. And what's true of me and my victory over sin and death will be true of every single square inch, including those who have put their faith in me. I want to experience that. <laughs> I don't know about you. I want to be there for that. I don't know what it's like to walk on this earth and there'd be no sin, no crying, no mourning, no death anymore. And I want to know what it means that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes such that whatever the pain of what we have been through, whatever the shame of what we have done is, no matter how deep that is, it's completely healed. Yeah, I, I, I like to know what that means. Right? Which means right now, where else am I going to go? Where else are you going to go, right? I'm telling our kids this, right? Like what we're going through, the loss of someone that, that we love. There's only one thing bigger than that. That's huge. Only one thing bigger. And it's the one who raised victorious over it all. Don't follow Jesus because you think it's going to make life easier. <laughs> follow Jesus because he's the only hope in a world where life is going to be hard one way or the other. Because let me tell you, a lot of superficial happiness, doing great, don't have to follow Jesus, don't have to sacrifice, you dig underneath the surface, and it ain't there. The Christian, I believe, Mature Christian, follow Jesus for some time. Go deep with him. You'll find the exact opposite. On the surface, you'd say, why would I trade my life for that person? You dig underneath the surface, there is a solidness of soul. There is a, the biblical word for it is, there is a joy there that most of this world, if they knew it, if we could define it, if we could put words to it, would give anything to know. But it comes at a cost, right? And so where are you going to choose, right? Where are you going to pay out? We're going to pay out. Back to the passage. <laughs> Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think, oh, let me just stop there. So there's, there's a couple things here that are worth noting in this first little section. I love this. So he hasn't obtained this. He hasn't already been perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that. The, good, the actual good news, the, the true announcement of good news, is never, in, in Jesus' articulation of good news, it's never, if you do this, then you will get this. Because we all know any ifs that ride on us, particularly ifs that ride on like my moral performance, my goodness, my holiness, the then it ain't coming, right? The good news is not if you follow this path, if you do these religious things then, if you, right? The Christian articulation of that is because he has, now you can. Because he has, now you can. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying everything that I'm running after, Jesus has first run after me and accomplished. Everything that he's asking me to pursue, he's pursued in me first. We love because he first loved us. There's a simple one, right? Like when God calls us, hey, hey, love me. Express that love for me. That hits different when you've been loved fully first. It ceases in many ways to be a command. It's a simple invitation into a relationship, a love dynamic, right? I love you. I love you completely. I've given my life for you. Let's be in relationship together. He calls us to holiness because he's first made us holy. He took on all the junk, all of your uncleanness, all that shame that you feel, all that, oh, if, if people really knew, like, it's already been killed by Jesus. He took it on himself. He says, now walk in that. Walk as though you are someone who's been washed clean. It's a get to. It's a not have to. It's a be clean, therefore, then I'll declare you clean. He says, I've already declared you clean. Walk in it. He says, I've freed you from old passions and desires. So flee from those. Being told to flee from that which you've been freed from? <laughs> it's just rational, right? I think of back in the day, we would play, in my neighborhood, we would play, uh, anybody play kick the can? Oh, wow, strong response, right? Best, right? The concept of kick the can was, you know, you have someone who's it, it's basically like hide and seek, and then when you see someone, you can say like, tap, 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 I see Sarah in the second row, and then Sarah's out, and then she goes into like this little, whatever we called it, like this little jail thing. But while I'm away looking for other people, oh, you know, where's Mark? Oh, I think, I think. someone can come, Obed can come and be the hero and to, and to kick that can. And once that can is kicked, those doors are open and you can run free, right? It's a weird thing to call it a command to say, once that can is kicked, Sarah, thou shalt flee. What does she do? I'm free. Of course I'm going to flee. I run for my life, right? Before that can is picked back up. This is what the Christian life is. Flee from the things you've been freed from, right? The things that you feel enslaved to, like those sins that you've promised off 6,000 times and you get frustrated with, you're not enslaved to them. You're free from them. Jesus is saying, so every time you flee, you're fleeing from that which you've been freed from. Right? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I've already been grasped. I am tight in Jesus' hold. Right? Like if, you, if you've ever held a child, um, someone really precious to you, there's this beautiful moment where you're holding them, and then they do what? They hold you. Right? He's saying, I'm already held. I'm already held. So why not hold on? Right? Jesus always goes first. Always his initiative always his pursuit. That's good news. Good news is because now you can, right? That's the heart of the gospel. And again, our little human hearts can do this thing like, I know God loves me, but he'd love me more if, right? No. God can't love you any more or less than he does right now because his love is not based on your moral performance. It's based on a finished act in Christ. Declared forever over your life. 
loved fully, accepted, belonging. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Or do you say, this is just too good to be true? Yeah, it's good news. <laughs> if that's true, like if that's true, go with me. If that's true, you are loved by the creator of the universe fully right now, right now. There's not a point five years from now where you'll be a better Christian and God's love for you will be levels up. Isn't that good news? Isn't that so different than what Rome offers, which says if you just try a little harder, if you do this, if you'd sacrifice this, if you'd, you know, stomp on these people a little bit, if you'd run the race, then maybe by the time you're done, you'll be a little bit higher in the pecking order. That's not good news. That's exhausting, right? Like, that's like, it's like Instagram and all, you know, all the people like you judge yourself against. You're like, uh, maybe I could be that one day, right? It's not what God has for you. I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is an image taken from from the games, uh, particularly from races that they would do. And there would be a a literal, uh, the words that's used... um, in my translation. I press on toward the goal. The goal is this word that would have been used for at the end of a race in the Roman games. Um, there'd, there'd, there'd literally be like a pole that you're running towards. And first one to, to touch the pole uh, wins, wins the race, which sounds like so like elementary school, but that's how they did it. And so uh, the image that he's getting at here is he's like a runner in a race, and he's saying, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I'm reaching for the goal, right? Like picture him straining himself. Picture those, those pictures from the Olympics where, where someone is trying to get, what it made me think of uh, was there's this wonderful one where these two, I think they're from like Texas A&M, it's like the college championships, and they're these two teammates and they've been challenging each other all year in like the 100 meter hurdles. So it's the one where like, and they're like really close to each other the whole time and everyone else is behind them. And the one dude just decides at the end, he's like, and he just lays out like full, diving, I'm always worried about copyright, otherwise I'd show it to you, but look this up, Texas A&M hurdles, just look it up, and he dives, and he wins, and he's also super scratched up, Um, because, right, have you ever felt a track, like a track is not something you want to dive on, that's what I think of, is Paul is like, that's, that's, that's my single-mindedness, I want to get there, right, like it's a super weird thing if, if in a race, you're just hyper-conscious of, yeah, but what's behind me, like, how this preaches better is like, what's to the side of you, you don't want to look to the side. But he's talking about what's behind him. That's an even more absurd image, right? Like Usain Bolt, right? 400 meters. He's 200 meters in. He's like, yeah, but what's behind me? It's like, Usain, what's behind you? Nothing's behind you. Like, just a, just a lane's behind you. Like, what do you mean? Right? It's a funny image. And yet here we are, right, in the race of life. And so often, we're our own worst enemy because we go, yeah, but what about that? Right? Running. And then we stop and we go, yeah, but remember five years ago? Remember six months ago? Remember... Right? And look, I'm not saying there's not a place for conviction of sin, for you to have a sense of, hey, if there's something you need to deal with in your past that keeps coming up, probably is an indication that the Spirit's moving you toward talking. You know what I'm talking about, though. Hopefully you know the difference between conviction and guilt, right? Because conviction drives us to do something about it. It, dri- it says, okay, this is my opportunity. Because I'm forgiven and free and safe in, tr- in Christ, I get to confess my sin and be done with it and talk to someone and have that person speak God's forgiveness over me. Guilt says you are that thing and you will never be anything other than that thing. Paul says you gotta let, you gotta let that stuff go. You gotta let that stuff. You can't, be, you can't be more vigilant over your sin than God is, right? You, you can't have a bigger view of your sin than the cross does, right? Because in some ways... When we say, we turn around and we say, have I suffered enough for that thing that I did? You know who we're actually asking, did they suffer enough? Jesus. You call into question the sufficiency and the reality of the cross when you say, yeah, I know I confessed it. I know that I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with it. I know that I've put things in place in order to try and war against this. It's something that I'm struggling against, but uh, 
maybe I need to feel a little bit more guilt. Maybe I need to beat myself up a little bit more. What you are essentially doing is you're saying, Jesus, did what you do really work? Right? Because if his death really kills sin, then when you participate in that through, through confession and repentance, it's dead. Paul says, I'm done with that stuff. I'm running, baby. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what's ahead. Because I've got one goal, and it's that post at the end, and it's when I'm face-to-face with Jesus, right? That's what he's talking about here, is attaining the resurrection of the dead. When he stands face-to-face with Jesus, he's like, I'm getting there, come what may. It does preach well, though, to talk about to what's the side, because I think part of what he's getting at, I do love the language here. He says, um, but one thing I do in verse 13, it's literally just two, two words in the original language. It's like, one thing. It's like, one thing. This is like the most important thing. And then he says, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward. And I think what he's talking about there is how prone to distraction we are on this race. And I just think that this is true, right? Like, we are... If you want to land this, again, I've come back to this a couple times in this letter. I think if you really want to land what Paul is calling us to, it's another one of those cases where we can't rely on spontaneous faithfulness can't be like, okay, yesterday I was really straining forward, but today I'm sort of like, you know, coasting, right? I think instead what we need to do is we need to be reflective enough and to say, when I look at my whole life lived, when I look at a year, when I look at a month, when I look at a week, when I look at a day in my life, is there evidence of me straining forward? And what would it be? Where does that live? Where does your straining go? live, right? And maybe to extend that metaphor beyond what Paul is doing with it, right? Like you need places to go when you are so exalted, uh, exhausted that you need something to pour into you. Right? Like you need, you need places where you are striving and you need places where you are being nourished, right? Just like on a marathon, they're very strategic about where they put their water cups and all that stuff. Like you need to know this is where refreshment lives for me and this is where straining lives for me. Because we are so prone to be mostly reactive in life and to say, okay, I woke up today. What am I going to do today? Right? And then you get to the end of the day and you're kind of like, what did I do today? Right? And we're so reactive because this, we live in such an unbelievably distracted time. Right? Like everybody wants to, we have it the hardest. One thing I can tell you is we, we absolutely do have more opportunity for distraction, for zoning out, for, for just kind of gliding through a day than, than any culture ever, ever, ever. That, that might be one of our biggest sort of unique struggles as a people, right? And here it is. It's this thing, right? It's this thing that can cause us to just be like, what, well, what's on my phone, right? Like, what am I going to do for the next hour? Well, what does my phone tell me to do, right? Like, oh, you know, like there's a text there or an app notification, right? Like, we're so reactive. And one of the things that we're trying to do as a church in this huge emphasis on discipleship, is we want to be more proactive as a people. Because if we are not actively being formed by God, we are, whether we want to admit it or not, we are being passively formed by that thing and by a distracted world around us. There's a church that I I really admire in New York City, and instead of discipleship, which is very much a biblical word, and I would argue for, and I like the word discipleship. But the word that they use for what we think of as discipleship is always counter-formation. Counter-formation. There's something good there. Because I think that sometimes we have this wrong view that what discipleship is is taking the blank slate, which is me, and growing it into Christ-likeness. When actually none of us, God bless us, bring a blank slate into our formation as Christians, right? We have been formed. We are actively being formed. We are being told, just like the Roman Empire went around and said, this is what the good life is. This is what you should value. This, makes, this is what makes a human being valuable. This is what a life well-lived looks like, right? We are having that shouted at us in a thousand ways practically every hour of the day. If something else does not form us, that will form us. You hear that? There's a passage that Rach uh, reads in 
Spiritual 101? Oh, Rachel's being called out. Um, Rachel, is this in Spiritual 101? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's about sort of building rhythms into your life where you're connected with God. Um, so the concept, we've used the concept rule of life here before. I know some of you are like, that's too weird a word or whatever. Just think of like rhythms. Think of actually building some structure to your life where you're connecting with God, where you're faithfully living into the things that he's called, where you're straining forward. This is a, a paragraph from the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that we build uh, some of our discipleship content off of. It says, in his book, A Hidden Wholeness, Parker Palmer, which is two of my uh, brother-in-law's three children's names, which I just think is funny. Um, it's a fun fact for our family. Um, in his book, A Hidden Wholeness, Parker Palmer, relates a story about farmers in the Midwest who would prepare for blizzards by tying a rope from the back door of their house out to the barn as a guide to ensure that they could return safely home. These blizzards came quickly and fiercely and were highly dangerous. When their full force was blowing, a farmer could not see the end of his or her hand. Imagine that. Many froze to death in those blizzards, disoriented by their inability to see. They wandered in circles, lost sometimes in their own backyards. If they lost their grip on the rope, it became impossible for them to find their way home. Some froze within feet of their own front door, never realizing how close they were to safety. One of the incredible blessings of the gospel, of the real good news, that Jesus has come, died for our sins, taken our shame, taken our sin upon himself, is we have access to God. We have a rope, right? We have access to him. He is so close. He is safe. He is sufficient. He can nourish you. And yet some of us, right, with the, the analogy is actually uh, meant to say, look, we, we need ropes in our life. We need to be connected to him somehow. And that can't be random. You don't, build, you don't tie the rope to the back door while the blizzard is going on around you. You build it when the sky is clear and everything is fine and you feel a little silly saying, I'm tying a rope and there's no clouds, but I'm going to tie it around myself and I'm going to go out and do what I need to do, right? When that blizzard comes up, though, it becomes your literal saving grace. This is what we're trying to do in discipleship. It's like, can we build a few ropes for you? Can you actually build a spiritual practice where you're connecting with God, where you're in the scriptures, where you're actually a little bit more confident praying? Can you get with some other brothers and sisters who, who do this together, figure out, man, what does it look like for us to actually be connected to him together, right? Are you consistent in coming here, right? Like Sunday gatherings, don't, don't make too little of this, right? Like there's something profound that happens when we just show up every week and get reconnected, right? It's like Sundays are a great time to say, okay, let me make sure the knot is, is tight there. Let me make sure I'm secure because we go out there and the blizzards come, right? And if you're disconnected and disoriented in the midst of the blizzard, it's too late often to build that rope. I think that what forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what's ahead, what it so often looks like is when the sky is clear, to be reflective about your life and to say, when I look at my life, is there any evidence of me straining forward? And have I built into it places, relationships, where I'm spiritually nourished because I take seriously Jesus' words that the life of faith is often a life lived in the wilderness? So is there nourishment anywhere in my life, right? Like all this stuff that we're doing, we're just trying to figure out how to do that well as a church, to serve one another well when those moments come. <laughs> Verse 15 is like such an interesting flex. Um, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I don't know why you're not laughing. That's funny to me. Like, I just think that that's funny. I just think like only an apostle can say that. Let those of you who are mature think this way. He's like, if you agree with me, you're mature. Um, like, be careful if I start saying things like this, right? Like, I think this is probably like him flexing his apostolic authority a little bit. Um, 
Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What's he actually saying? What he's actually saying here is he's picking up on this word think, which we've gone back to a couple times in Philippians, which is more than like have these same thoughts as me. He's talking about posture and mindset. He's, he's saying, look, your mindset should be straining forward. And if anyone calls you to coasting, if anyone says, oh, you don't have, you're, you're such a try harder, right? Like you're, you're such a do more person. Like try harder, is that not a thing? Um, like if anyone dissuades you from the reality that the life of faith requires straining forward, they're out of step. And I think that what Paul is saying is that they're not out of step with me. They're out of step with Christ himself, right? This is like an interesting, it's an interesting way to end this passage, but I think it's Paul's way of saying, this is so essential that anyone who, who remotely um, gets in the way of this really hard truth being at the center of your faith, just be really careful of. And again, I think for us, what I would say is we need to be really careful of subtle, if I do this, then God should, kinds of ways of being in faith. And as hard as it is to call that out in each other, that is, that is not our shared mindset. It is not how we think. This, this original word that we talked about a bunch of week, weeks ago, that again, isn't about, isn't about mental um, specific mental thoughts. It's more about how we approach life, our posture towards life. And he's saying, look, your posture has to be, life is really hard, the world is hard because it's marred by sin, but God is close to those who are brokenhearted. Forgiveness is real. We're allowed to move beyond the worst things about us, and we are called to strain forward because there's a goal worth reaching. He says that's maturity. That's mature faith. That's what mature faith sounds like, and that's what it looks like. And he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained it's a really interesting phrase that he uses here. But basically, it's yet another way of Paul saying something that he says in about 60 different ways throughout his letters, which is what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we get to become what we already are. We get to become what we already are. You are already a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the Most High King if you have put your trust in Him. You now get to live into that reality and to enjoy a relationship with the Father. We know this, right? Just because you're in relationship with someone, they're your parent, they're your child, they're your brother, they're your sister, doesn't mean that there's the enjoyment of that relationship there, right? You can be someone's child and say, yeah, I don't have a relationship with that person, right? That's a thing. That's not holding true to what we have attained. Literal language is here. Live by the standard that you have already grasped after. It's, it's a way of saying, become who you already are. God has declared you holy. Flee that which you've been freed from. Just another way of saying what he's been saying all along. You are loved fully. You are not earning God's love ever, ever. You're enjoying God's love. You're enjoying the relationship with him. This is the gospel. It's really good news. He goes first. And I just don't know that there's a better way of saying it than take hold of that for which he's taken hold of you. Aren't those beautiful words? I'm grasping after the one who's already grasped me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, both individuals and a church known for straining in the best kind of way. Um, known not for our apathy, not for...